Okay, number one, the fact that Moses was careless in his citation of earlier scriptures suggests that we should prefer the idea of plenary to verbal inspiration. I don't like the word careless. Well, there's a lot of problems with that. Yeah. I mean, it's just false yeah. in about three different well, ways. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Moses yeah. citing earlier scripture. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. citing himself. In, you know, yeah. But uh, careless is probably a poor yeah. word. I mean, imprecise, he perhaps, okay. is, is would, be a, would be a better way of putting it. That, and then the whole, it, that the problem there, if there is a problem, isn't solved by preferring the term plenary. What does plenary mean? Oh, oh, so that really doesn't help. Uh, but I don't think it kills verbal inspiration either uh, because uh, we, we, the point was that verbal inspiration uh, indicates that the verbs precisely reflect the divine intent uh, without any necessary dictation. So... So that, that, that one's false in about three different ways. So hopefully you didn't put true on that one. <laughs> so, <laughs> Number two, saying the Bible is inspired because the Bible says that it's inspired is an instance of circular reasoning. True. It's true, although we said that's not really as much of a problem as some suggest. So it is true. Um, but uh, we, we suggested that all reasoning in an ultimate sense, is circular. Number three, biblical inspiration may be proven, at least in part, through research in the secular disciplines such as archaeology and geology. False. False, yeah. I tried to catch you there with that, at least in part, little line there, but nobody fell for it. So proven is the wrong word. There may be some sense in which there's a... A demonstration and a realization of its truth uh, through archaeology and geology, but they don't prove anything. Three most important texts for establishing inspiration. What, what do we have down here? I, I, I probably, I probably caught you off guard here. I haven't asked you this kind of question before, but uh, well, let's say let's put them out here first, and I'll explain why I asked the question. Correct. Yeah, I said my mom. That's the only. <laughs> that's the only one I got. <laughs> I got Second Peter one. Second Peter one nineteen to twenty one is is the second. Those two are probably the big two. But then we said there was a third one uh, that's in First Corinthians two six to thirteen. Yeah. So those those three are the. Uh, Critical. And the reason I ask that is I don't always, I don't always or often even ask for proof text, but there's a sense, I think, of some, some, some text you just really have to put into your head and, and, and memorize to put there. I, I have this, I have this trouble with the, the newer students coming at, coming in at seminary. Um, they've been told for their whole high school and college career that memory memorizing is bad and so they you know they think oh there's google there's always google <laughs> and you know some sometimes that's there is some truth to it but when you're out when you're out there in the big bad world trying to argue for the truth of scripture and some of these serious doctrines that come under attack some some of these verses just really need to be at the tip of your brain 
And I think this is one of them. This is, this is one set of texts that I think is really important that you be able to establish very, it's, it's one that's right there, uh, readily accessible to you that, that you can call to mind, uh, instantly, uh, to let people know, uh, about the inspiration of scripture. So. What was the third one? First Corinthians? First Corinthians 2, 6 to 13. That was that combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Okay. Any questions on this? Okay. Well, let's go ahead and pick up here in the, in the notes. We'll probably go a bit faster tonight just because of the nature of the material. Uh, we're trying to establish then the inspiration of Scripture from Scripture itself. And uh, what I have here tonight is just a a slew of passages that in, in which the Bible claims to be inspired in so many words. And again, the, the reason I, I have so many here is because it seems to be a very important theme for the scripture writers to establish this. And uh, again, part of the goal here is to overwhelm with the number of texts that actually uh, make this claim. It's it's a it's a unique kind of claim uh, within ancient literature. We don't have other sacred texts making this routine claim. These are God's words. These are God's words. These are God's words. But the Bible does hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. So we'll see tonight. Okay. But let's go ahead. It's, yeah, it's running. So, so here we have the objective witness, that is, the Bible's own claims. We'll talk also a subjective witness here uh, as we come towards the end of our time tonight as well. But uh, let's look at these objective claims of Scripture itself to its own inspiration and its own authority. Uh, start in Exodus 6 through 14 for a stretch of nine chapters. Each one of those chapters begins with, The Lord said to Moses, and, you know, it, they seem rather mundane to look at that, but what it's what he's saying is what I've written down here is something I got from the Lord. The Ten Commandments are interchangeably attributed to Moses and to God throughout the throughout the Pentateuch, but then beyond. Moses says, God says. Well, which is it? Yes. You know, it's both. Moses said it, God said it. 1 Kings 17, 1 to 2, the words of Elijah are the word of the Lord. So he speaks the word of the Lord. There's some sort of an equating between the two. The law, the testimony, and the commandments are all from God. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The law of the Lord is perfect. The commandments of the Lord are are true. Um, and uh, we know that they're, they're the Mo- Moses' law and Moses' commandments, but they're God's as well. Uh, then in the prophets, especially Isaiah 1, the word of the Lord came to me 20 times in the book. Jeremiah does it 100 times. The word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel, 60 times the word of the Lord came to me. It's all recorded here as the words of God, but also the words of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Daniel says that the words were delivered to Daniel by the mouth of God. He wrote them down. Uh, just about all of the minor prophets... Uh, have, you know, start, start off by saying, the word of the Lord came unto Hosea, Joel, Jonah, Micah, etc. Did they hear a voice? 
Yeah, it's it's a, it's a that's a good question. It seems certainly sometimes that's the case. There's this word oracle that's sometimes used, uh, particularly Malachi uses this sort of this oracle of the Lord, and uh, probably does suggest an audible voice. Whether that's true of all of them, it's it's hard to say. Um, it may be something that was just in, internalized, uh, but at least sometimes it was an audible voice. We know Moses did burning bush. Yeah. For sure. So. so the the Old Testament itself claims to be God's words, and then Christ comes along and confirms this. Once we get into the New Testament, the Gospel accounts, he held, and, and this this argument is manifold, so not only does he claim it to be the Word of God, but there's a few other lines here of reasoning. Christ held that the Old Testament was his final authority. He's speaking conversations here with the Pharisees and other, other uh, of his adversaries there in the book of Matthew. It is written, have you never read? You know, he's sort of incredulous. Don't you know that this is what the Bible says? This is your this is your final court of appeal, your only court of appeal. He claims to, to he claims that they are mistaken because they don't understand the scriptures. Implying, of course, if they knew the scriptures, they wouldn't be mistaken because the scriptures are true and 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 accurate. Uh, he says here in Mark seven, you set aside the commandments of God invalidating the scriptures. Of course, equating then the scriptures with the words of God. Uh, the scripture cannot be broken is a phrase that he uses in John 10, 35, implying that the whole of the scripture stands and or falls, but stands here as an authoritative block, a unit here. Uh, not one piece can uh, be uh, pulled out without the whole thing unraveling. And so the whole thing is true and 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 from God. We're going to see that also in Matthew 5, 2. That's coming up here in a little bit. Christ also assumes here that it's necessary for the Old Testament prophecy to be fulfilled. It's, it's an interesting series of phrases that you see throughout the Gospels that uh, he did X because the scriptures said he had to, or he couldn't have done X because the scriptures because the scriptures say it happened a different way, and it, it's and don't really want to get into a, a psychology of the mind of Christ, but it's almost as though he's actually, you know, going through life, sort of making sure he's. He's he's fulfilling the scriptures now. Maybe it came rather naturally because it's but 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 he seems to find this a very important thing that the scriptures be perfectly fulfilled. They didn't seize Jesus in the temple. Why? Because the scriptures had to be fulfilled. And then he he announces the certainty of fulfill unfulfilled prophetic events. The disciples would fall away. Why? Because Zechariah thirteen says so. Jesus couldn't call down 12 legions of angels because it would violate prophecy. And I saw he could have called 10,000 angels, but but no, he couldn't. I mean, in one sense, he could. In another sense, no, he couldn't. Because if, if he had, uh, then the scriptures wouldn't have been fulfilled. Uh, the second coming will occur because the Old Testament says it will. And uh, this, is, this is repeated time and again as you go through the gospel accounts. He also assumes 
the historicity of the Old Testament miracles, and forcefully so. It's not just that he says they're true, but he ties the truth of these events to his own ministry, such that if, you know, just as the serpent was lifted, the brass serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, implying, of course, that if the the, uh, the the brass serpent wasn't lifted up. Why then? Then his 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 very his very uh, crucifixion is in jeopardy. Same with uh, Jonah and the and the whale. There, you know, just as Jonah was in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, so also must Christ be in the belly of the earth for three days. And uh, so, and so again. Uh, putting an exclamation point on the historicity and the accuracy, the truth of the of the Jonah story. He also makes no distinctions between the various parts of the Old Testament. He holds them all equally as divine in origin. One portion is not more inspired than another. Matthew 5.18 is a verse that's often used incorrectly. In fact, it seems like every year... Uh, when I do a senior, senior doctrinal review, uh, just about everybody puts Matthew 5.18 in as a verse proving the preservation of Scripture. And that's not, so, so don't, don't ever make that mistake. <laughs> you know, that's not what this verse means. It says here, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The point here is not to say that it's going to be preserved until everything is accomplished. I think that is true, but I don't think that's what the verse is saying. Okay, it, it, What it's saying here is that the, the authority is such that not one little piece of prophecy that is made will fail to be fulfilled. It is, its authority is indefeasible. Okay. John 10, same thing. There's this scripture cannot be broken. Is it not written in your law? The scriptures can't be broken. I mean, it, it stands and falls as a unit. Uh, and, uh, sort in, 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 uh, in principle, that statement that's made in James. If you, you, ha- if you feel that you have to complete one of the laws of the Old Testament, then you're obliged to keep them all. And the, the idea here is that the, 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 the whole thing stands as a unit. Uh, you can't just pick and choose or pull, pull one or two laws out and, and, and the rest of it survive. The whole of it falls. It's like one of those, what is it, is it Jenga? There's, there's blocks of, of, you know, pull one out and the whole thing collapses. And so that, that's the point here. The whole of it rises and falls. It's all true. All equally true. And Luke 24, he even uses this word all. Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You have to, you have to, you have to believe everything. And Edward J. Young concludes this way. I think it's a, an apt conclusion here. When Christ thus set his seal of approval upon the Jewish scriptures of his day, it meant that he considered those scriptures to be divinely inspired. I don't think there can be other, any other conclusion than that. So uh, it's very evident here. But Christ actually witnesses not only to what has been written, but uh, interestingly, and I think this is perhaps one of the more interesting subjects of the night here, he actually anticipates what's going to be written 
and 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 authorizes it as well. Okay. In fact, uh, let, let's go to John because it, there's, it's all in this in this little farewell discourse that's recorded here in the book of John. Uh, there's a great deal of information about this uh, about the upcoming scriptures. So none of the scriptures of the New Testament were written while Christ was on earth. It wasn't for at least a couple of decades uh, before uh, the very first books, James, Galatians, are starting to be written here. It may be asked whether Christ can, can possibly witness to the authority of the New Testament, but I think we can actually make the case that he did. Okay, We start off by, by looking at John 13, and with this anticipation that John has, that Jesus has here, recorded in John, uh, that there's going to be more written. He says there in chapter 13, verse 7, you do not realize what I'm doing, but, but later you will understand. There's going to be more information coming. Same thing is, is, is kind of statement is made in John 16, verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now. And then he goes on to say, but, when the Spirit comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. So he'll give you the, the the sufficient block of material, the Word of God, the New Testament scriptures later. So he recognizes, first of all, that he's left some of the some of the revelation unrevealed. It's still hidden. And so he announces there that there's going to be a completion of biblical revelation. The Holy Spirit will guide the spirits into all truth. And the implication, again, is not that the Holy Spirit's going to give them every data of possible knowledge, but rather he's going to give to them the sufficient word, everything necessary for life and godliness, uh, what is necessary to equip the man of God thoroughly for every good work. And then he says in, uh, later in that chapter, an hour is coming where I'm going to tell you plainly. You're going, you're going to get all the information you need at some later point. And, and he actually details who's going to write it and how. Chapter 14 and 15, uh, particularly, I think give us a very helpful instruction. I think these verses, I think, again, are verses that are sometimes misused. Uh, to suggest that the Holy Spirit's going to come alongside of us and whisper data into our ears or remind us of things that we'd forgotten. I don't think that's the point of these verses. And, and if a look at the whole context, I think bears that out. John 14, 24 to 26, he says this, These words you hear are not mine own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So they're you know, a special deposit of truth directly from the Father. All this I have spoken with while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have said to you. Notice there, he's not just the Holy Spirit's not just coming willy-nilly and reminding anybody of of you know bits and pieces of scripture that they read some point when it when it becomes necessary uh, for them to have this information now he says i'm going to remind you of everything i said to you the implication is he is saying things and they are going to have the holy spirit's going to come along and 
reiterate this material so that they can write it down for posterity. It's almost as though Jesus is saying to his disciples, put your pens right down right now. Don't, don't take any notes right now. Just listen. Because the Holy Spirit is going to come later, and he'll make sure you get a, a, a very a very careful, detailed accounting of this, and you'll be able to write it down for posterity. But just, just listen now. I think it's even more clear, chapter 15. When the Counselor, the Holy Spirit again, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And as a result of him testifying to you, you must also testify because, here's, here's the line, because you have been with me from the beginning. Okay, so he's, he's authorizing these people, these apostles, to speak for him. The ones who had been with him from the beginning. Again, this is not a general promise to all believers of every age. Rather, it's a specific statement to the apostles who were with him that he is going to send the Holy Spirit to remind them, to reiterate for them what he has said, and as he testifies, they will testify. So he's going to, the Holy Spirit's going to come and tell them, they're going to write it down for posterity. And the reason that they are selected for this task is, is given here is because you have been with me from the beginning, which once we get to the, the tests of canonicity later on in the course here, well, usually the first one on the list is apostolicity. Is it written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle? And it comes back, at least in part, to this verse that says the people who are going to be testifying officially for God in the form of the scriptures are the people who have been with him from the beginning. Okay, Does that, does that follow? that make sense? Okay. And sometimes those verses, I think, are, are used to give us uh, a, you know, confidence that we don't have to study real hard because God's just going to remind us of what we need to know when we're out witnessing or something. That, that's not that's not the point of these verses at all. How about Mark and Luke? Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. I mean, I, I sort of introduced it here, but there, I think we can we can at least say for those close associate of an apostle. Right, Mark was probably Paul's the harder one. Paul. Yeah. Because Paul's the harder one, because Paul wasn't with Christ from the beginning, at, or at least, I mean, it's possible they might have had some encounter along the way, but it's not recorded. Uh, it seems like Paul probably would have mentioned it if he had. Um, but uh, uh, So he's probably the harder one. We'll get to that when we talk about canonicity. Jesus also sketched in advance, using these same texts again, the general content of what this revelation is going to be. It's going to be all that Jesus said. The Holy Spirit will take what is mine and disclose it to you. It's historical. So it's it's historically spoken. It's doctrinal. It's prophetical. He will teach you also what is yet to come. Chapter 16, verse 13 says. And it's going to be final, or perhaps I could use the word sufficient. He will guide you into all truth. Again, ultimately, everything necessary for the whole Christian church. All the truth that the church needs moving forward. And so, I think we can argue here that Jesus, in effect, pre-authenticates the New Testament scriptures. Just as he did the Old Testament, he actually anticipates the New and authenticates it. So knowing and having determined in advance 
what would be written under divine inspiration. Jesus gave these writings the same authority as his own. In fact, he says, if they obeyed my teaching, they have to obey yours too. Because your teaching, the apostolic teaching, is going to be on par with Jesus' teaching. Okay, uh, Sometimes we have, I've got a red letter Bible here. Um, uh, it's just a... Uh, Sheer luck that I ended up with this one, but but there's 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 part of me that doesn't like a red letter Bible because it sort of implies that the red letters are more important than the black letters. Uh, that's not the case. I think this verse makes that very clear. They will listen to you, the apostles, just as they listen to me, because the words you say are on par, at least in terms of authority, with the words that Jesus said. And then I think that's corroborated also in this high priestly prayer that he makes in chapter 17, where Jesus prays for those who would believe in him through his word and through the apostles' word. Okay, so uh, again, implying that the, the, the word of the apostles and the word of Christ are, are equal in authority. Okay, so that's what, that's Jesus, uh, you know, uh, participation in this in this process. Any questions on that? It's fairly straightforward here, but but then the apostles go on to corroborate that still further. Okay, they continued to appeal to scriptures as justification for what they believed. Philip, speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch, began in Isaiah fifty three and preached to Jesus. So he's He's, he's drawing the connections between the Old Testament and the New and uh, treating them the same. Paul is reasoning for three Sabbaths from the Scriptures. Paulus was doing the same thing, proving from the Scriptures. These are almost certainly here the Old Testament Scriptures, that Jesus was the Christ. So he's demonstrating from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled all of the necessary uh, tests. He passed all the tests and had met all of the messianic credentials to prove who he was. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. Then off, uh, then and then, according to the scriptures, is a, is a line that comes into that early creed: "Christ died for our sins." According to the scriptures, I was buried and raised again the third day. According to the scriptures, here's one of those passages where we're probably now talking about at least in part the New Testament scriptures, because uh, because it's giving some detail that wouldn't have been uh, possible from the old. Uh, so he's actually giving he's actually giving credence to the New Testament writings as scripture equally as the old. Then the uh, the apostles' preaching and teaching were tested by scripture. The Bereans, of course, famous for this, examining the scriptures daily to corroborate what the the apostles were saying, and they're commended for this. Uh, they didn't just take the apostles' word at face value. They corroborated it through the Old Testament scriptures, and then then and then they believed and and put it to put it to put it to practical use. Holiness of life, every detail of duty, were based on scripture. These command commandments that appeal back to the Old Testament. You shall not speak evil of a ruler from Exodus. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Comes from Deuteronomy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter makes this statement, but he's quoting from the holiness codes of Le Leviticus. 
Apostles assumed that it was necessary for the Old Testament prophecy to be fulfilled as well. Uh, Acts 1.16, perhaps not the, you know, it's not my, it's not my favorite proof text here because I, I honestly am not sure how they actually came up with this conclusion here that the, in Acts 1.16, that the scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, that he had to be replaced. They make an appeal to uh, some material in the Psalms. And quite frankly, I, for the life of me, don't really see the uh, why they they took that verse and said, oh, we have to replace Judas with another apostle. But uh, the point that still stands, they understood that the scriptures had to be fulfilled. And whatever they were understanding of that passage in the Psalms, they were saying, hey, we've got to do what it says because it's true and it's prophetic and we have to, we have to, we have to, you know, be the fulfillment, the completion of this of this pro- this prophecy in in Psalms. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. One. Well, I mean, I, I look at my notes here now, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, you know, I just talk. You, what's your problem? It does talk about somebody taking somebody's place, right? Right. That may his place be taken by another. The question is, how do they get that to be to be Judas? To be Judas, yeah, right, yeah. So maybe, maybe it may, and maybe it is something of a principial kind of fulfillment, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but yeah. Again, the apostles conflate the word of God and the word of scriptures. Acts four twenty five, you spoke, God spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. So they understand that David's words were God's words. Uh, God had spoken. And, and they quote David and Isaiah, uh, implying here that everything that David and Isaiah wrote here in this, in the, well, not David wrote, but David said here, uh, were actually the words of God. Romans 9.17, Paul says, the scripture said to Pharaoh. Well, the scriptures didn't say anything. The scriptures weren't written yet. Moses said to Pharaoh, and then later recorded it as scripture, but the point stands here that the scripture and the words of Moses are the words of God. Galatians 3.8, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the just Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance. Okay, Well, this is a statement of God in Genesis 12. This is part of the, uh, you know, the, the sort of a pre-covenant here with the Abraham. Hebrews 3, the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice. Well, you say, well, no, it was... It was a human psalmist said this. Well, yes, and it was also the Holy Spirit speaking through that psalmist. Okay, so, so again, again, this this conflation here. This, they indicate a certain confusion in current speech between Scripture and God. You know that God, what God said and what the Scripture said are the same thing. The outgrowth of a deep-seated conviction that the Word of Scripture is the Word of God. I'll continue here. The apostles looked at the scriptures as the oracles of God in multiple, multiple occasions here. This is a term here that was often used of, of the, uh, in, 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 uh, in sometimes in, 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 in pagan thought that, that there would be a, you're familiar with the Delphic oracle and others. They're, they're supposed, supposedly conduits whereby information could, 
come down from the gods to the priest uh, in the uh, in the temples of the pagan gods, and they were called oracles. And and, and the same use, the same word here is used on these several occasions, uh, but this time, you know, more much more appropriately. Uh, the the uh, the 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 human writers were this oracle, this conduit whereby God could speak uh, to his, what he had to say to uh, the Christian, the Christian church. The apostles regarded other New Testament writers of scripture as authoritative to the words of Christ and to the words of the Old Testament. And there's not too many of these, but a few passages here where new earlier New Testament writer writings are already given this, the, the credibility uh, by being called scriptures and being lumped together with the Old Testament. So uh, there, there's this canon that's being you know, put together. First uh, Timothy 5.18, where Paul cites Luke and Deuteronomy side by side as equal in authority and calls them both scripture, okay? that uh, uh, don't muzzle the ox uh, while he's treading out the corn and the laborer is worthy of his hire. Uh, well, one is a citation from Deuteronomy. The other is a citation from Luke. Uh, there's no, there's no Old Testament passage that says that, but they're both here given the same quality and authority as, as equally scripture. Second Peter 3, 2, recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through the apostles. Again, so the, the words of the prophets and the words of the apostles are now given equal authority. Peter in his last book, so we're moving towards the end of, yeah, towards the end of the writings of the scriptures, uh, talking about the opponents that he was that were being faced in the uh, in the church there that they distort Paul and the rest of the scriptures, implying that what Paul was writing is also it's likewise scripture. And then the apostles, again, use the same kind of language that we find in the Old Testament, where the old, where the writer said, the Lord said to me, this is the word of the Lord. Um, and Luke says, this is the exact truth. Yeah, he's, he's very confident that he's gotten everything right in this book. Um, now he says it in the context of doing research, but even, even so, that's a rather, rather bold claim. If he isn't operating, under the uh, under the under the understanding that inspiration was occurring, uh, John says these things are written to you that you might know, and we know that this witness is true. Well, that seems a bit arrogant, un- unless you recognize that John is writing on behalf of God, and he knows he is. And that's not an arrogant statement at all. Then Paul says he we speak with words taught by the Holy Spirit. These things I write are the Lord's commandments. First Thessalonians 2.13, he commends the Thessalonians for receiving the word of God for what it is, not the word of men, but, for the, but as the word of God, which does its work in us. Paul even makes this unbelievable claim in Ephesians 3 that his writings were superior to the Old Testament. Now, he's not saying that they're more true than the Old Testament, but in some sense, because of dispensational factors, they actually they actually trump the Old Testament scriptures uh, for the present day, for the present age. 
Hebrew says the same thing. The New Testament revelation we have is greater than the law. And then we find this very fascinating passage at the very end of Revelation 22 that says the penalty for adding to the old the, to the New Testament was the same as adding to the Old Testament. It's uh, it's it's I think it's kind of interesting uh, that uh, at the end of Deuteronomy I don't have it in here I think I have it later in the notes end of Ecclesiastes end of Daniel we have these statements made okay this is the word of God, don't add to it. Particularly when we look at Ecclesiastes and at uh, at Moses, we're, we're, sh- we're closing off sections of the Bible. Remember the law, the prophets, and the writings. So Ecclesiastes shuts off, cuts off the the writings in the in the in the Old Testament uh, in the in the Jewish canon. Uh, Deuteronomy finishes off the law, and so these these are. These statements appear at the closing of these sections of the of the Old Testament, and their and their warnings: don't add, don't add, don't add. And then John sort of stands on his head and says, "Don't add anything at all, or else you're going to be out of the book." Um, so, so, he, so there, there's really something climactic about what John says. I, I, I think he's saying more than "don't add to the book of Revelation." I think he's saying don't add anything more to this because this this section of the scripture and it's the last section is done. So don't add anything more to it. There's nothing more to be added. Okay? So again, again, it perhaps gets a little mundane looking at all of these passages here, but I think the point is made that the, the, the scriptures are, the scripture writers are extremely concerned that their readers understand they are not writing for themselves, that they are writing the words of God, and they are writing uh, under this under this uh, the, the, this 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 idea of inspiration. Uh, th- thoughts on that? Again, it's fairly straightforward. But if you have a question, I'm happy to. I've got a question that relates to moving way ahead dispensationalism, the Ephesians three two through five. Right. Wouldn't that be sort of the argument that the non-dispensationalist would use? Paul's writing, how they were explaining it, but right. Well, he's 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 detailing in Ephesians three uh, this 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 mystery. He calls it a mystery, and it's this this idea of a church. Okay, so the um, the the fact that Gentiles and Jews are together in one body, and so. So, we're, so I'm not I'm not saying a replacement kind of philo- uh, theology, but there is a sense in which the church is the new people of God. You know, in in it's it's the it's the it's the uh, the other people. Perhaps even better to say it's the other people of God. There's Israel. God is turning his attention away from Israel temporarily and turning his attention to the church. This mystery, this 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 group that is. Jew and Gentile together, and so and that was unknown. Yeah, it was unknown in the Old Testament, and so Paul says, "Okay, this this is this is actually this is actually current truth. This is this is the stuff that applies directly to you, whereas the older material, while still true, is in some ways written for a different age and for a different people." He says that this 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 is the stuff that applies directly to you. And that's what he means by saying it's superior to the Old Testament. 
Does that make sense? Does that follow? Yeah, I just see where someone could take that. As yeah. Right. What's yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying that the New Testament was replacing the old, but but he is saying that this is this is superior in the sense that it is more advanced and is more directly ap- applicable. Same thing we see in Hebrews, right? You know, the the Old Testament prophets spoke in various times and various ways, but now, okay, but now God has spoken through His Son. Okay, so and so that and and the idea is that's the superior revelation, the revelation of his son. Doesn't make the rest of it less true, but this is superior. And and Paul's saying something similar about his own writings. Okay, so that's the objective witness. That's the material in the scriptures themselves. But let's talk here about the subjective witness. Obviously, not everybody believes that the Bible is the Word of God. So, what's the difference between us who do believe that the Bible is inspired in the Word of God and those people who don't? So, what, it, it, there's obviously something else here that's going on than just the objective witness of Scripture. There's no deficiency, I say, on the in the Scripture's part. The Holy Spirit's work in inspiring the Scripture precludes this. It's it's perfect. But something has to occur in the recipient, that is, the reader, in order for the inspired authority of the Word of God to be embraced as such. And I'm going to say that there's actually sort of three, I'll say three stages in this. Um, and let me, let me see if I can't uh, piece this together here. First of all, I'm going to use a, a phrase here, borrowed here from Cornelius Van Til, so it means it's rather opaque. Uh, but he talks about the recognitive certainty of inspiration. Uh, and uh, Bonson explains this with an illustration. He says, if you're going to go to an airport to pick somebody up. Did we do, do this illustration here already? Okay, you're going to go, you're going to the airport, you have to... You've been sent to the airport to pick somebody up, and uh, you need to find that person and, and get him where, wherever he needs to go. How would you know that you have the right person? Hold the sign. We have a picture. Or... Okay, so that's that's one way we would call we might call that discursive. Okay, uh, we you know we we have a description. You know, we hold up a sign with his name on it. Uh, we might, yeah, we told he's going to be wearing a, a blue coat and be carrying a brown briefcase or something. It, you, you get as much data and you, and, you, and you construct the person in front of you. And somebody says, eh, nope, not that. You know, it's a, and, and so that's, that's, that's one way of, of finding him. There's another way that perhaps might work. I don't think, it, I, I don't recommend it, but perhaps you could just sort of intuit the person. You just know, you know, it just, it just sort of comes to you. Uh, I, again, I don't recommend it, but in theory, it's a, it's a, it's a possible way of knowing. But there's actually a third way of meeting someone at the airport and knowing that they're the right person. It's the most common way. You have them paged. Okay. So they respond to their name. That's possible. Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a way of doing it. Well, have them look for you. You already know them. So if you go to pick up, you know, you go to you go up to pick up your wife. In fact, that's that's why I say it's the most likely way because 
you're usually going to pick up somebody you know. You usually send the guy who knows the guy in order to pick him up. Why? Because that's the easiest way to, to find somebody. You already know them. So if you're going to pick up your wife at the airport, you don't you don't have to. Okay, she's going to be wearing jeans and a and a, and a, and a teal. No, you don't have to do that because you you know you're going to see her, and know her, and you're going to know her in, in, instinctively because you had a prior acquaintance. And uh, and and the idea here that that I'm trying to suggest here is how that 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 how a person recognizes the Bible as scripture is not because they construct it and say, you know, this makes sense, this makes sense, you know, yeah, I'll buy it, I'll, I'll believe it. Um, nor do they just simply say, wow, that, that it's just got a quality to it, that, that wow, that, that must be divine, okay? Rather... What we, what, what, what Van Til's suggestion is, is that we recognize the voice of God, a God whom we already know. And he derives this from Romans 1. Uh, remember Romans 1 tells us that all people everywhere know God by means of his revelation in their, in creation and conscience. So they recognize this God. They, they know when he speaks, they recognize him because they have something written on the very table of their hearts. And so, and so the, the creation tells them something about God, even his eternal power and divine nature, so that they're without excuse. So, so they recognize the creator. They recognize God. It's not existentially communicated, I'd say here. Rather, all persons being created in God's image intuitively know their creator. Uh, and uh, what Frame says here in his book, ultimately God himself reveals himself to his hearers. He, re he reveals himself to us as our creator. We recognize him. We know who he is. We know what he's like. We know what he demands. How do we know? We know. That's what... Romans one thirty two says, they know the decree of God that those who do these things are worthy of death and, and still do them. How do they know? Well, there's a law of God written upon their heart. They just, they know this intuitively, instinctively, because it's part of the divine image, part of the, the conscience that is given to them from, from God. Doesn't mean, uh, here that they embrace God for who he is. In fact, we find that r routinely, in Romans 1, what do people do with the truth of God? Suppress it. They suppress it or exchange it for a lie. Both, both of those verbs are used here. So they, they recognize it as true. They recognize it as divine. But they, but they, but they don't embrace it as such. So they know him, however fleetingly, before they willfully suppress him. And purge him from their consciences. That's what we do. That's what, that's what it means to our, our consciences to be seared with a hot iron. Uh, we actually, you know, rewrite the programming of our of our consciences so as to scour out all all reference to God. And we never do it completely, but uh, people do it rather thoroughly at times, right? They, they 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 just completely wipe God out of their out of their thinking, out of their consciences. It's and their consciences are described here as seared. But everyone recognizes instinctively and intuitively uh, the God who is 
in Romans 1 here from the creation. And what Van Til argues uh, is that by implication, it's reasonable to extrapolate that people also recognize the voice of God apart from any validating evidence in Scripture. Could that be similar to what he says about the sheep will know my voice? Well, except in this case, we're not just talking about the sheep. No, we're, I'm we're, we're, about Jesus being the shepherd. Right, right. We know his voice. Right, but but not only in, in what what Romans suggests, it's not only the sheep, not only the believers that recognize the the voice of God, but all persons. So that's 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 why I said that's the only, that's the that would be the difference. Okay, now again we have to, we. As we've said earlier, there there are limitations on this. We are not suggesting that people embrace inspiration as an idea and fall in love with the idea based on a reading of the scripture. That's not the case. Uh, nonetheless, uh, there is a sense in which they are cognizant that this is God speaking. This is very important to us when we're giving out the gospel. Uh, you know... I have a class on apologetics, you know, strategies and methods for for sharing the gospel successfully. And uh, one of the points that I think is important to make is that even though there's all kinds of strategies and and devices that you can use, ultimately the, the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to convert people. And I, I, I never want my students to lose sight of that. I, I, and uh, while there's other things that can be said, I won't ever denigrate someone who simply opens the Bible and starts using it. And here's why. Because people recognize the voice of God when they, when they encounter it. And I, and I think that, that that's, that's something that's true. So that's, that's sort of the first step here in identifying uh, the inspired quality of the scripture. So that's, that's, the, that's the first point. I've, I've heard stories of more than once of someone basically picking up a Bible and coming to a saving faith. And, yeah, I, and I, I think that is and possible. It, to me, it seems impossible without the Holy Spirit. Cause, oh, sure. It's, I it, mean, it would be. But I mean, yeah. we're not talking about the Holy Spirit here. Yeah, but but we are talking but, about but, a cognizance that it okay. is the word of God. But I mean that saving faith comes without anybody explaining it to them that they're picking up and reading God's word and it's right. Ordinarily, I mean Romans says as much. Ordinarily, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, and that word of God given to them by people who have been sent. Uh, but that's not that's uh, that's not to say that someone couldn't pick up a Bible and read what is there and and come to a saving faith. But but we're not actually talking about a saving understanding of the scriptures yet. At this point, all we're talking about is a rec- recognition that this is the voice of God. The same way we recognize the Creator in the universe. Right. We'll go one step further here now with a second concept here and that is the idea of conviction conviction it's there's all kinds of odd ideas about conviction and convictions that run around here but it's it's really a non there's a sense in which is very non-technical word it simply means to be convinced okay Uh, so uh, 
word was it Elenko, I believe. Mm-hmm. Let's see, I've got to got to mm-hmm. let him know that I still remember some of these Greek words here. So <laughs> you talk Greek, you should know. That. <laughs> <laughs> you remember all that teaching you did, right? Um, it's been a while. <laughs> but this word of this word conviction simply means a convincing. So we can describe it here: a heightening here, a, a heightening of this realization that this is the voice of God. So people read the scriptures, hear the scriptures. Uh, come in contact with revelation of various types and they recognize the voice of God. But most people simply just brush it off. But then there's a neck, there's, a, but there's also some people and we're still not gotten to the point where they're saved yet. But they're not only aware that it is the word of God, but they, but they've, they've become uneasily, uneasily aware that this is the word of God and that they really ought to obey it. They may not want to. They, they're still hostile to it. At the same time, there's this there's this sense of dread coming upon them. I call it the white knuckle. You know, the, 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 the phrase doesn't work as well as it used to because we always used to have these invitations and and you know this, with sixteen verses and and you know one of the reasons why the pastor would keep going with it is because he would look out and see the white knuckles of somebody. You know, he's gripping the pew in front of him recognizing that that this is true and he ought to do something about it but resist it okay this that's 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 best i can to describe this idea of conviction let but let's look at the sort of the critical text here and describe it a little bit more thoroughly here john 16 8 to 11 when he comes the holy spirit he will convict that is convince he will convince the world of their guilt in regard to sin and of righteousness, their their lack of righteousness, and the judgment that is the reality of impending judgment. Okay, so 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 what the Holy Spirit does is, in conjunction with the Word of God, now convinces unbelievers that they're guilty, that they haven't the righteousness necessary to get them into heaven, and for that reason, they are standing under the hammer of judgment about to fall. Okay. And then he, then he goes on to explain it in regard to sin, because men do not believe in me in regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, and where you can see me no longer in regards to judgment, because the prince of the world now stands judged. Uh, we could we could tease those out a little bit further here, but uh, just for sake of time, I just want uh, to get to the, 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 the point here. If you have a question, we can keep going. We can fill that out a little bit more. But definition here. Conviction is very simply the convincing work of the Holy Spirit, a work whereby he specifically impresses upon men, believers and unbelievers alike, the truth of specific scriptures to which man finds himself at odds, specifically his sin, his lack of conformity to God's standard or his unrighteousness, and his resulting culpability to divine judgment. Okay? This work of conviction exceeds the mere testimony of intuited certainty that we looked at under point A to include now an activity of the Holy Spirit, which may be direct, the Holy Spirit is actually convincing them, or indirectly, 
Because there's a number of verses in which we find that we as believers are agents of divine conviction. In fact, the one there, uh, Matthew 18.15, you'll recognize that as the uh, the classic passage on church discipline, right? So if you if you have something, your, your brother and you have some sort of ought between you, if he's, 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 he's sinned, you go to him privately and... And, 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 and the goal here is to convince him, to convict him. Okay. That's the word, the same word is used here. And if he's convicted, then you've gained your brother. So here's, here's a, here's an instance where you are, you as a human are an agent of conviction. And you're actually convicting someone who's already a believer here in this case. So conviction does not apply only to worldlings, uh, but to anyone who comes face-to-face with the scriptures, realizes that I'm on the wrong side and I need to change, I need to do something about this. (coughs) Conviction does not, however, accomplish all of the work that is necessary to convert. Uh, Conviction sometimes contributes to repentance. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't, (laughs) So, so sometimes this convicting work works. Sometimes it doesn't. And I've and I've got uh, you know verses there corroborating both both sides of that. Conviction is merely merely a convincing work, a, a heightening here, uh, whereby the Holy Spirit renders the unbeliever acutely and self consciously aware of his suppression of God and His Word. So it's a heightening here that goes on. Sometimes we we want to explain, you know, you know. Sometimes you're you're talking about someone who's, uh, you know, you're you're sharing the gospel with, and you you get you you give a prayer request, and sometimes the words come out like this, you know, he's getting really close, and 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 I and I always pause on it because you know, regeneration is a is an instant. There's 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 no ramp up to it. I mean, it's an instant. You know, God flips the light switch on. Nonetheless, we all recognize that there is something that's a process, you know, that they're, they're, they're becoming more agitated, perhaps becoming uh, more concerned about their own eternal state. There's something going on inside. They haven't given in yet. They haven't been regenerated, but there's something going on inside. And I would, I, I would chalk this up to this work of uh, con- the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. So if you want to give that prayer request next time, uh, yeah. you say that this person is under conviction and pray that the Lord will complete that work with illumination, this internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So that's the last one on our list and we'll just, let's, let's, let's buzz through this and then, and then yeah, if there's questions we can, uh, entertain them. So illumination then. Illumination is the efficacious work of the Holy Spirit. So here we've, the Holy Spirit is not only exercising uh, force on the mind of the individual, but is actually converting the mind here. It's an efficacious work, whereby he not only convinces believers of the authority of the Scripture, but also makes them favorably inclined to yielding to it. So uh, he, he's broken down the walls of resistance so that the unbeliever technically not an unbeliever any longer, now is embracing the scriptures. Okay, so he believes. 
classic verse there is first corinthians two fourteen uh, paul's describing his his first his delivery of the uh of the uh of the spoken preached word and then the reception my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words because that's not ultimately what's going to convert but with a demonstration of the holy spirit well what's this what's this demonstration of the spirit's power well he describes it then in verse 14 the man without the spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the spirit of god for their foolishness to him he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned and so the man who has the Holy Spirit's work of illumination ongoing, now is able to correctly appraise the word of God for what it is and submit to it. He welcomes the word and he submits to the word. So, so now, we, now, we've, now we've come all the way here. Not only does he recognize that the Bible is true and from God, he now has submitted to that authority. Uh, first Thessalonians 2.13 says something similar. Uh, we thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but what it is actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Okay, so that's, again, this, this reflection of this idea of illumination. At, at one point, you were simply looking at these as the words of men. But a work of God occurs so that you not only look at this as the word of men, but for what it actually is, the word of God that actually transforms me. It's transformative in nature. So, so that's the sort of the third step that, so, so again, we're talking about this subjective work that's going on that causes people to take the objective proof of inspiration and, and incorporate it. So this illumination, which appears to be concomitant with the regeneration of the human mind and will, causes the believer to accept or to welcome the word of God for what it truly is, causing the believer to appraise the word of God correctly as inspired and authoritative with the result that it effectively does its work in the heart and life of believers rendered favorably inclined to it. So so that's there's sort of a succession here, a progression here that goes on as uh, as we recognize here this inspired quality uh, that uh, marks uh, the the words of God in scripture. Okay, thoughts, questions? Okay. I either either I explained it well or I explained it so poorly you don't even know where to start. <laughs> Probably the latter. Uh, but uh, if nothing else, then we'll call the night. Again, we don't meet next week. We have off for the Easter week. A lot of people are away, so we'll just uh, we'll skip that, and then we'll, we'll meet back together in two weeks.